Reading is just a habit you gotta form in all of life. Books don't change people's sentences. Reading good, solid, reformed, Puritan literature, reading especially the classics, that's had the biggest impact on my life. Well, g'day and welcome to another episode of the Reformers Bookcast. Uh, my name's Tom Eglinton, the manager here at Reformers, and today we have with us Douglas Wilson calling in from Moscow, Idaho. Thanks for joining us, Doug. Happy, happy to be with you, and I, I, I got a bonus point right off the top when you said g'day. <laughs> I always say g'day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they actually say that. Yeah, yeah we do. And there's, there's no kangaroos jumping down the street, so well, but we get the g'day going on. Um, now, Doug, well, could you please just uh, introduce yourself a little bit in case some of our listeners don't know you? Sure. Um, my name is Douglas Wilson. I live in Moscow, Idaho. If you're uh, familiar at all with the geography of the U.S., we're in the Pacific Northwest, in the upper left-hand corner. And um, I've been here since 1975, and I've been the pastor of the church here since 1977. Um, a long-suffering group of saints, and um, that's the main thing that I do is pastoring the church. Very good. Thank you for that. Um, now, you write a lot. Um, I, do you keep count of how many books you've written, or do you just let it keep not rolling? In, no, no, not precisely. I'm, I'm not quite sure, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I tell people that, I write to make the little voices in my head go away. <laughs> it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, I think there's only one other person I've I've met who has written as prolifically as you, or maybe close, and that's Tim Chester. I think you and him oh. have got to be competing for producing the most books each year. Um, <laughs> now, so one of the interesting things I think about all your books is that you write on all sorts of different topics. And so mm-hmm. I want to just touch on some of those today. Um, okay. Because you, and, and I want to start where you've been the most uh, helpful influence on me, um, which is in marriage. Uh, you've, okay. you've written extensively on marriage, uh, probably half a dozen at least books um, yeah, specifically yeah. About, about marriage, which I think is interesting because whenever I talk to publishers, they tell me that, oh, there's too many books on marriage. We don't need more books on marriage. Um, but it's clearly something that you think is important um, and you, you continue to write on on your blog as well. You're often talking about marriage. Is that something that you see as fundamental to your ministry? Um, why is it that you write so much on, on that particular topic? Yeah, um, it really is fundamental to our ministry. Uh, there's no way to have a healthy, I'm a pastor, there's no way to have a healthy congregation or healthy congregational life unless the families that make up the congregation are healthy. And those families aren't going to be healthy if the marriages aren't healthy. Uh, you, you can't make a good omelet with rotten eggs. And basically, if the marriages are struggling or tension-ridden or just a bad odor coming out of them, the, the church, uh, whatever that church is like, you don't want to be the pastor of it. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, uh, the other thing I would tag onto it is I think it's quite true that we don't need more marriage books that simply 
say what all the trendy things uh, are being said by the other marriage books. So what happens is publishers chase each other and, and they chase each other until they get tired of it. So uh, somebody does marriages, marriages for dudes, and then someone else does marriages for dudettes. And so, you know, you, you, they copy each other and they don't say anything strikingly original or um, strikingly basic. Mm. So if you, um, if you just go straight back to the text and say what the apostle Paul said to do, no varnish, then it's going to seem really radical and earth shaking, even though you're just repeating what Ephesians five said. Yeah. And that, and that's what I love about your material on marriage is it, all, is it all is generally very just basic. This is what the Bible says. Um, although you, you never, you don't hold back on those topics that the, that the Bible speaks about that aren't trendy. Um, and one, one of the big ones I think is headship uh, in marriage. Right. I actually did a, a review of, um, I was trying to do it, we, we do these little lists of books on various topics and I went through and, and skim read a whole bunch of books on marriage and it's actually fairly rare to find headship um, in Christian marriage books. Um, right. Do you want to speak a little to maybe why you think that might be and why headship is so fundamental and important in, in marriage? Yeah, um, I believe that Christian marriage is, is always countercultural. And in our era, it is particularly countercultural because our culture from the Enlightenment down has been sort of rabidly egalitarian. Mm. Um, and that egalitarianism comes out, uh, basically all the isms that we're fighting. Socialism is economic egalitarianism. Feminism is sexual egalitarianism. You know, you just go, whatever's ailing us, uh, egalitarianism is probably at the heart of it. And headship and submission is the most non-egalitarian structure you can imagine. So it collides immediately with all of the bromides and the platitudes that many people grew up with, including, unfortunately, many Christians. So they, you can, the little girls were told you can be anything you want to be, uh, believe in yourself, girl, you go girl, you know, all of that, all of that stuff. And then you encounter, uh, the apostle Paul's teaching and it's, uh, wives obey your husbands and everything that is not an egalitarian sentiment. Mm. And, and so consequently it is falling out of disfavor. And the problem is that there are many times where you can trust a liberal exegete to tell you what the text is saying more than you can trust an evangelical because the evangelical is stuck with whatever he comes up with. So, the the liberal can say the apostle Paul taught headship and submission in marriage. Ho, ho, ho. Um, <laughs> how terrible. And yeah. how terrible. And we've grown past that. The evangelical can't do the ho, ho, ho thing. So he's got to skate lightly over the top of Ephesians five. When, mm-hmm. when he's preaching through Ephesians, he's, it's a red wire, green wire moment, defusing the bomb in the movie for him. Because if he says it wrong, he's going to have some irate people 
um, in the congregation saying what, what gives. Mm. Yep. That's, uh, that's very true. Um, and then, so how, how is it that, that headship and submission, those two things working together then actually produce, uh, robust and strong marriages, um, where people who are seeking to live an egalitarian marriage, where there's a sort of, you know, I think you've talked recently about servant, servant leadership, which is, um, Poten- yeah. Potentially, depending on how you read it, is what the way you can get around headship without having headship. Um, yeah, servant servant leadership is the code word that complementarians use, so they can act like egalitarians. Um, well, it's okay; it's servant leadership. Yeah, and, and to, lead, to lead means you have to give up all your authority. Yes, right. <laughs> but and, and so the question I pose to the people who want to use the servant uh, leadership jargon, leadership is a corporate, sort of a corporate term. Um, the Bible doesn't say husbands lead your wives. <laughs> it says wives obey, wives, uh, wives obey your husbands. And uh, it says that Sarah obey, um, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So, I would ask the servant leadership guys, are you willing to call, call it servant lordship? Mm. Okay. Now I agree with, I agree with them wholeheartedly on the servant part. Okay. I, I believe that the uh, Jesus washed the disciples feet. He died for his people. Um, we are to the Christ is our head, but as our head, that's where the crown of thorns was put. So, um, I don't have a problem with the servant part. What I have a problem with is the manifest nature of the attempted workaround. So um, the Bible says a husband is a, is a head. He's a Lord. Uh, wives are to obey their husbands. And he's to do it with the servant's heart. Amen. But the question boils down to, do you uh, serve by leading or do you lead by serving? Okay, so you might have to flesh um, that would, one out. <laughs> okay, when when people say servant leadership, what they want is the husband to lead by serving, and what that translates to is find out what she wants and do it. Yep. Okay. All right. So you you lead, and we'll call it lead. We'll put scare quotes around lead. You lead by serving. Well, that's the inverse of what the Bible says to do. I do believe that a husband can, should be a true servant to his family, but he should be a servant to his family by doing what God tells him to do. Mm. So, um, so that you, you can't be a servant, a, a key can't be a servant to the lock by trying to, by trying to be a lock himself. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, the bow can't be a servant to the violin by acting like a, like the instrument violin itself itself you you the bow has got to be a bow and the violin's got to be a violin otherwise there's no music yeah it sounds like the, the distinction you're making is okay well in you know when christ came and served his people did he give them what they wanted right well no no one wanted him right until he came, and until he served them and called them to himself exactly exactly and so who's so you're saying really that when the husband is leading, who it, whose desires is he seeking to fulfill? 
God's or his wife's. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. So I'd say, I say that in every marriage, you have to have three wills involved. There's the will of God, the will of the husband and the will of the wife. Yep. And so uh, the husband's job is to determine as best he can do discharging his office, what God would have them do. And when he and his wife have a discussion and let's say they don't agree on something. And it's a situation where if he were to decide against her desires, that would be a situation in which submission would be required of her. Mm. Okay. Sometimes he might decide to not require that submission. Other times he might think, no, this is really what God wants us to do. And we're going to do it. Yeah. Now I'm sure we could talk about husbands forever. Um, probably because you and I are one of them. And so it's interesting, (laughs) but the, the other area of, and this is one of the things I find interesting about your books too, just to encourage our readers to pick up some of your books on marriage is when you, usually when someone writes a book on marriage, they have one idea and they apply that idea, um, to marriage. Um, your books I find cover a whole range of things. And so you talk very strongly about headship, but then you also talk about submission um, and, and the wife's mm-hmm. job in in the marriage, um, which is, you know, you can get away with saying a lot about the husband these days uh, because right. a lot of the commands are acceptable in our current, uh-huh. you know, love your wife, uh, die for her, all those right. things, which are hard to yeah. do, but they're acceptable in today's society. But telling a wife to submit and to be, uh, submissive in her um, attitude is not acceptable. Right. Um, so, here you go. And I, I, I feel strongly about this, such that um, if if um, when I do when I perform a wedding, if the wife does not vow obedience, mm. I'm not I'm not going to do the wedding. There you go. And so, why why do you feel so strongly about it? Obviously, the Bible commands it. That might. Must be one reason, but can you expand perhaps on other aspects that you've seen in your pastoral work and as you've thought about marriage? Yeah, well, I, I would say first, the Bible is so plain and so clear on this in multiple places, right? So it's, um, uh, you know, it's the plain teaching of Scripture. At the same time, the world, the world is represented by our current generation, it's doing its level best to shout that sentiment down, mm. to not allow it. You know, you can get fired. Uh, you can get fired from any number of modern corporations for saying, I think a wife should obey her husband. Including a church. <laughs> Including, <laughs> that's right. That's, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. You can, you can find yourself frog marched to the door and, uh, you know, escorted to the curb with some swift kicks. So, the fact that the Bible's so plain on it and the world is so hell-bent on shouting this down, not giving it a hearing, makes me go, huh, I wonder if this is important. Mm. Yep. Right? And I, and I suspect it is because, uh, well, I don't suspect. I, I know that it is. Apart from the preaching of the gospel, where a, a man goes into an unconverted area and stands on a tree stump or a city water fountain and declares the gospel of free grace, where he's just preaching the word. Second only to that, Christian marriage is 
a robust proclamation of the gospel. Um, husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And wives are told to submit to their husbands as the church does to Christ. Mm. What we're doing, every every Christian marriage that's functioning the way the New Testament says that it ought to function is a potent display of the gospel of grace. So can you explain then how uh, a, a wife su- submitting her will to that of her husband um, in the Lord uh, d- displays the gospel in, in such a glorious way? Yeah, she is displaying, she's modeling for her next-door neighbor. Let, let's say she's friends with her next-door neighbor, the, the wife there, mm-hmm. who's not a Christian, and they've got a situation come up where the, the Christian wife submits to her husband. What she's doing is modeling for her unconverted neighbor what that unconverted neighbor needs to do, which is submit, mm. right? Uh, that's what re- when we repent and believe, what we're doing is we're submitting ourselves to Christ. When, we're, when, we, when we present ourselves for baptism, we're submitting ourselves for Christ. We're becoming, uh, we're, we're becoming his bond slaves. Yeah. He's Lord. Right. Yeah. So uh, if the wife is to call uh, her husband, Lord, the fundamental Christian confession is that Jesus is Lord. And so when, when uh, a Christian wife models that cheerfully, dutifully, wonderfully, um, her non-Christian friend sees that this is not bondage. This is this is liberty. Yeah, and and this is what um, yeah, this is what sacrificing your your will looks like. Um, yeah, yeah. This that's that's it is beautiful, and it's something that's so difficult to sort of consider um, in a, in the abstract. And so it's very yeah, it makes sense that mm-hmm. that would be so helpful for the world to see, demonstrated, right. laid out in front of them. Yeah, you mean you you mean you're doing something you don't want to do. Because your husband says so, yeah. But yeah. I do that all the time for Jesus anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And for and the, the other thing that's key to this is the non-Christian neighbor can see that the husband is doing it too. So he's not an autonomous autocrat, mm. right? So she's submitting to her husband, but the two of them together are submitting to the Lord. So the wife is submitting to someone who has himself submitted. Uh, a husband is not requiring anything of his wife that he's not doing on a regular basis. Yeah, that's wonderful. All right, well, we'll leave the, the marriage conversation there. And I want to shift to the next topic, which you talk about, okay. a lot, which is parenting. All right. Um, which I guess naturally flows on from, yeah. from marriage, but it's another topic in which you've written extensively about. Um, this one, I think, is a little more popular with the publishers. They like to write parenting books. Yeah. But... um. Can you, uh, I guess, explain again why that's something that that I I perceive as fundamental to your your ministry and your message? Yeah, part of this is uh, the same answer as what I said on marriage, because families are the the units that make up most congregations. So um, it's not just the marriage. A good marriage will overflow into a healthy family, usually. And you, and so I want husbands and wives and kids 
worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day, all of whom are happy to be there and happy to be there with one another because they're, they're all in fellowship. So I was just talking to someone earlier today about this, and, um, and I, there's a difference in parenting. There's a difference between principles and methods. Yep. So um, a, a lot of times Christ, Christian parents who are eager for help on, in their parenting gravitate toward methods. And the problem is sometimes you can copy the method without understanding the principle. Um, it, it becomes a paint by numbers sort of thing or insert tab A into slot B. And, and nobody is quite sure why we're doing this. And what you want to really want is to understand the principles involved in godly parenting. And I would say one of the fundamental principles is that it's all about fellowship. It's all, it's not about keeping your kid from, it's not all about how soon do you let your uh, six year old son climb the tree? You know, uh, it's, it's, it has to do with how do you keep and maintain fellowship with every member of the family so that, so that you can sit down at dinner at, in the evening and eat together and pray together and laugh together and tell stories together. And there's unbroken fellowship. Hmm. Um, and so when sin arises, when disobedience arises or some uh, fault or failing in one of the kids, uh, the thing that results from that is an interruption of fellowship. So the discipline should be calculated to remove the barrier to fellowship. It's not to look at your rule card and say, okay, this, this behavior gets three swats. Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that's a method approach. All right. Um, if he told a lie, three swats, if it's a big lie, five swats, um, that's getting all tangled up in the method. Um, that's like saying every child must spend 10 minutes in the bathtub. Um, well, one kid might have to be in there longer depending on how dirty he was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So you, you've got to make, um, decisions on the fly and there's a dis there's a difference between discipline and it relates to this same topic, a difference between discipline and punishment. Mm. Punishment is simply meeting out justice. Discipline is corrective and uh, parenting is a corrective exercise, not a judicial exercise. And if only our governments knew this and stopped calling our prisons yeah. corrective facilities. Yeah. 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 <laughs> they don't know how to do it. Yeah. Because they're meant to be dishing out punishment and we're meant to be dishing out discipline. Yeah. yeah um, exactly. That, that's very helpful. So then can the, I guess the concept of, of fellowship um, is, changes the attitude that you come at everything with. Um, yes. Which is, which is why it's more important it's important to understand the principles rather than just running at the methods. Um, right. Can, do you see that then as, as also an extension of displaying the gospel to the world? Uh, yes. So first uh, John one seven says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Mm. Okay. Um, so when, when there's koinonia fellowship in a church community, when there's koinonia fellowship, what do you in, mean by koinonia, uh, sorry? Um, I'm sorry, koinonia. Koinonia is the Greek word for 
for fellowship communion right. or, or partaking. So um, when, so it's the word there in first John one and seven, we, where we have fellowship with one another. Uh, so by koinonia fellowship, I mean spirit given fellowship. When we have that kind of fellowship with one another, then what we're doing is we're displaying to the world that we're walking with God, right? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And so the people in the world can't say that they don't experience that they don't, they have no grasp of it or even, um, even people from uh, struggling Christian homes. Right? Uh, one, one time, this is a, uh, I'll collapse this. It was a long roundabout story, but as it happened, one time there was a, a girl that was going to be picked up by her mom at our house after some event or, or other. And we had to sit down to dinner. And so she was waiting for her mom to pick her up. And so, uh, and so we were at the table and doing our normal thing. And she was either on the, in the front room or the, you know, and, after we heard from her mother after afterwards, or we heard downstream that her comment was uh, about our family was mom. They laugh. <laughs> Did <laughs> yeah, mom so, laugh at that? Or? <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I think yeah, mom, mom was, uh, I think attracted to it. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, oh, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to be easy with yeah. each other? Yeah. Um, to have no barriers, but have nothing. Some, some families, you know, the crackle, you sit, if, if they sit down to eat together, mm. the crackle of the dinner table, you can set your iPhone on the table and charge, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, I think like, uh, I, I like that you, you've defined your sort of fundamental concept that, that drives a lot of your thinking on parenting as fellowship because that's in the positive. The way, right. that, the way that I've often, the, or the, the thing that I've gleaned from a lot of your writing on parenting is um, that we know how to deal with sin, um, mm-hmm. which, is, which is the opposite side of the coin, um, I think. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, and you, you've described that in church relationships and marriage relationships as well, that... Mm-hmm. Christians should be able to deal with sin and re- regain fellowship quickly. Right, right. Because if, uh, what do you have to what do you have to do in order to have a garden full of weeds? Nothing. Well, nothing. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, what do you have to do to have the back closet in your house turn into a fright? Well, nothing. Right. Uh, so, um, a lot of Christian homes start to look and smell like a closet at the crazy cat lady's house. And it's like, a this, how did it get like this? Well, um, it gets like this because um, nobody picks up. Mm. Right. And it's what I call keeping short accounts. Dealing with sin is uh, the, basically the rule of thumb is deal with it now. Um, deal with it now. So, and this is something in, I go over in pre-marriage counseling with the husband and wife. And I tell them, if you, this, this next 10 minutes of this counseling, if you do what I'm telling you, you're going to have a good marriage. Mm. If you don't, if you don't do it, you won't. 
And, and it's, it's that simple. Basically, if you sin, um, then pick it up now, clean it up now, uh, address it now. Don't let it fester. Don't let it sit there and, uh, you know, until something else falls on top of it and you get to the point where you don't even know where to start. Mm. Um, so a, a lot of couples and, and families, they, they've got this awful, it looks like the back of their garage where this mound of things accumulated and they, all they know how to do is pray for a fire. <laughs> uh, <yep. laughs> now, um, just before we transition, I did just want to say uh, that the, these concepts that you're talking through um, it really, really do work. Like the, I've, I've been married for 10 years and I read Reforming Marriage just, just after or just before I got married. And you, you told me in there, uh, you're responsible to fix all the problems. You might not be guilty, but you're responsible. Um, and here's how you fix them. And, you know, you confession, forgiveness, deal with the sin, move on. And yeah. um, I have not been able to go to sleep because of you. <laughs> <laughs> while, while there's not fellowship in my marriage, and it's been a great blessing. So thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you for, thanks for, thanks for doing it. <laughs> well, sometimes I didn't do it because I wanted to. I just couldn't go. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm responsible. I got to fix this. <laughs> um, so let's move on then to another topic that I'd just like to touch on, which is education. Because you've also destroyed my life in this area. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. I'll say. <laughs> now, um, one thing I, I want to start with is, is I think I want, I want to get your insight into the American school system because one thing I've discovered in Australia is that every single school, public or private, has to teach to some extent the government curriculum and, and gets government funding. Um, is that the case in America or, or is it different? Uh, no, it's different. Okay. So... Um, and there, it used to be, uh, we've had a number of legal battles when we started, when we started Logos school, uh, here in Moscow, um, at the time, uh, the, the local government school superintendent was responsible for all education that occurred in his district, right. public or private. So that was, uh, that was on the books that was mm. required in and, the law. And so that was a, a county law or a state law or that was a, that was a state law. Right. Right. So the local school district superintendent was responsible for everything. Um, and, uh, but it was basically a paper requirement and nobody, and no enforcement mechanism or anything like that. Right. <clears throat> so when we, when we started, Logos school, which would have been in 80, 81. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not ask permission. We didn't go to anybody. We didn't check in with anybody. We just started. And uh, none of their business anyway. So, uh, <laughs> so we were up and running for a few years when a homeschooling family went, went to the district to get permission to homeschool because they were a rule follower, if you know what I mean. And uh, the district said, no, you can't. 
And then they said, well, what about Logos school? They're not, they're not authorized. You know, <laughs> you know, thank, thanks friend. Thanks friend. Um, but it was really telling because the district at that point said, well, Logos is too big to mess with. Ah. Because I think that if they'd gotten wise to us in the first couple of years, we would have had a real hard time. But by the time, by the time they found out about us, we were already too big to mess with. And then I, I live in Idaho, one of our states, um, and the, all the, the public school superintendents went to the state legislature and requested to have private education taken off their plate, um, which it was, the legislature did. And so now basically we have a free market in education. Okay, well that's good, and so that's yeah. that's defined by state. Um, it's in America. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a it's a state by state thing. So some some states have onerous regulations, but I think the most onerous would be uh, you, they don't. You can't get government money, but I think the uh, the most requirements would be your kids might have to pass a periodic test. Right. That they're that they're that they're doing okay. Okay. But that's, that would be the probably the extent of it. Well, lucky you guys. Um, now, you started Logos, like you mentioned, early 80s. Um, and I've read, I read a few of your books on, on education. Um, and it, you wanted to start the school for your daughter, I believe, uh, Rebecca. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and you weren't sure how to – which, which – sort of style of education to use. And then you read an essay by Dorothy Sayers about classical education, um, which sold you on it. And 40 40 years later, you you can see the results. Um, All you have to do is have a look at the work that's being put out of Canon Press and NSA and and go go visit in Moscow, Idaho, and you'll see the sort of situation. Um, Are you... Are you convinced that classical is is the the way to go? Yeah, I'm I'm beyond I'm beyond sold. So i I don't think I, I don't think that a rigor the kind of rigorous classical Christian education that we do up through college now with New St Andrews, I don't think that that's for everybody. I do think the basic the basic rudiments of a classical education, classical Christian education, is for everyone maybe up through high school. Um, and I, so I, what I would like to do, my, my lifetime goal would be to have a classical, a faithful classical Christian school within driving distance for every parent in America who wants one. Okay. So it's available. And right now uh, we, we started the first classical Christian school uh, in the ACCS here in Moscow in 80. And right now there are over 300 schools. Um, So we're getting, we're getting to the point where um, basically uh, most parents in America, I think have access to a local Christian school that's doing this. So in Australia, there is nothing. Okay. The only Mm -hmm. people, and I'm talking all the way through to second, uh, to tertiary, um, like college and okay. university, the only people who really touch on classical are the Catholics. So in terms of Protestant 
angle. Uh, there's nothing. So can you right. can you uh, help inform us um, what what is classical education for dummies? One hundred one thirty seconds sort of thing. Okay, there's two there's two elements of it. All right, one is the structural pedagogical element of it, and the other is the content. Right. Okay. So the pedagogical element is comes from what I call the Sayers insight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dor- Dorothy Sayers was not uh, telling us what education was like in 1300 when she went back to the Tribune. What she was doing was applying uh, applying something, whether self-consciously or not, that came out of the Middle Ages and also came out of an educational reformer uh, in the Reformation era, a, man, a Moravian bishop, a reformed guy named John Amos Comenius. Okay, so um, this is the, I'm flying over 30,000 feet, if you don't mind. Yep, so uh, with, uh, in, the, in 1300, the way, the way education worked is if they identified a promising student, a kid who was really bright, they would arrange to get an education for him. You know, either his father would get it for him or a patron would pick it up. But you're looking at, you know, a, a small percentage of the, of the kids, of the boys, would actually get a f- full formal education. The Reformation era introduced the challenge of mass education, educating everybody. Because for the, for the Reformed, uh, literacy, universal literacy was important because they wanted everybody to be able to read the Bible. So uh, you had the, the challenge of schools for everybody, <laughs> all right? And what Comenius did in, this, in that era is that he was the inventor of prerequisites. So uh, Comenius, in the old days, you would take all the bright kids and throw them in the deep end of the pool. And because they were the bright kids, they, would, they could swim. They yep. figured it out for them. They figured it out for themselves. When you're educating everybody, the the vast majority of your students need to have their hand held and they need to have you walk them through it in an orderly manner. So you should really take this subject before you take that subject. You should really uh, lay down this foundation and then build on it, that sort of thing. So that's what Comenius did. So Dorothy Sayers took the trivium, which was grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric were three the three elements is trivium is Latin for three way intersection, three roads coming together. So grammar, dialectic and rhetoric and Dorothy Sayers noticed that those three things matched three stages of child development. Uh, the grammar matched with the, what she called the Paul parrot stage, grade school children, the um, dialectic or logic stage matched with the pert stage, junior high kids. When they want to argue you know, with you all the time. Yep. Yeah, why are you making me do this? And so Sayer said, when they start arguing with you, teach them how to argue. Mm. You know, um, don't say, shut up, this is a Christian school. Teach them how it's done. And then in the, in the poetic stage, the final stage, which matches the rhetoric stage, which would be the upper, you know, uh, grades 9 through 12, um, the kids become concerned with appearances, how they're presenting themselves. So uh, if you take... If you take Comenius and Sayers and combine them, what you have is a pedagogical method that emphasizes memorization and drill 
in the grade schools, argumentation, discipline, analysis, taking things apart in the junior high years, and then rhetorical flourish and polish and presentation in the high school years. That's when you do your lit courses or apologetics course or, you know, that's that sort of thing. Rhetoric course. And so that's the pedagogical structure. And so can you just, when you say pedagogy, that's not, yes. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Okay. I mean, uh, basically your philosophy of how education should be done. Okay, cool. Yep. Okay. So that, that's the, that's your structure of how, that's the classical that's structure the, that Dorothy says observed and has been worked, been applied for ages before. Yeah. So that that's the structure. Now, just uh, as we've been doing this for forty years, um, when we when we first started it, it's because we uh, didn't didn't uh, we knew we didn't want to be a Tony Prep school where we're paying tuition, but the kids are just getting the same unbelieving education that they're getting at the government school, uh, and and they've got chapel on top of that. Um, nor did we want a reactionary fundamentalist academy where it's faithful and believing but very stripped down okay so we wanted a full orbed christian education and that leads to the content side of this and that is uh we are profoundly conservative in the sense that we want to preserve the heritage of the west we don't uh, we don't identify the west with the kingdom of god but the west the history of the west and the history of the kingdom of god are so intertwined that you cannot understand one without understanding the other. So if, if someone said, tell me the story of the kingdom of God since the apostles, I can't tell the story of the kingdom of God without talking about Charlemagne. Mm. I, I, I can't tell the story of the kingdom of God without talking about the Holy Roman empire. Um, because the, it's all woven together. Okay. Now, uh, it's not that we believe that the West is sinless or arrived or anything, but this is our this is our heritage, and it's a Christ, distinctively Christian heritage, works and all. So what we want to do is have the structure of um, of the classical Christian school and have a content that emphasizes the heritage of the West. All right, so that's you put those two things together. And you've got a classical Christian school. Now, uh, when we've got in here in the States, we have a thing called the National Merit, uh, National Merit Scholarship. Right. And it's, it's an annual test that juniors and seniors uh, take. And it's helpful in getting scholarships and placement in colleges and whatnot. Uh, one year, we had uh, in our senior class, uh, this was a number of years ago, but this is this is what I noticed. We had five national merit scholars in our senior class. Okay, five. How many total national merit scholars would you see across America? Well, uh, I'm not sure about across America, but in Idaho, our state, there were two other schools that had five national merit scholars. So right. we were in the we were tied for first place yep. with two other school with two other schools. Um, there were Bishop Kelly in Boise, a Catholic school and Capitol high school, a public school in Bo- also in Boise. Um, they had five national merit scholars out of a class of 500. Each one of them had about wow. 500 yeah. students. Yeah. 
we had we had five national merit scholars out of a class of 25 no yes so that's the kind of thing we're talking that's the kind of thing that, those are the sorts of results we've been seeing where um, the kids are just killing it wow. and because what we're doing is we're teaching them not we're, we're teaching them how to think not just what to think. It's not like it's a Christian indoctrination center. We, we do want to train them and bring them up in the Lord, but it's, but you don't, you uh, don't it's want robots just, at the end. You, you yeah, want we, we, images yeah, of God absolutely. at the end. Thinkers, people who believe intelligently. Yeah. And you know, when, as I've been um, reading and thinking about this from, from your writings, mostly, um, I, I can't help but sit back and go, I, that, I wish I had that. Yeah, you know? me too. I, I feel like me, I, waste, I wasted, <laughs> you know, 12, 13 years at school, I feel. You know, I, 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 it would have been so nice I don't know, to have that. I, I don't know how many times I've told our teachers and educators at conferences, look, this is a challenge. We're all trying to provide our kids with an education that none of us got. Yeah. There you go. So hopefully that's uh, wet the appetite of some of our listeners and they can go and read your books, which I think uh, some are getting republished by Canon Press as we speak. The case that is correct, yeah. Christian Education and are they doing the other one as well? Yeah, Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning is being re-released by Canon, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, very good. Um, now, we've covered a whole bunch of things. You talk about a whole lot of other things as well, which we're not going to be able to get to, but I think there's... Um, just b- before we get to one last topic that I'd like to cover, if that's okay, um, I just wanted to ask you, these things, marriage, parenting, education, they're all basic things, and you've been talking about them for 40-plus years. Do you ever get bored of them? No. It's, it re- that's, that's amazing. It always it, – it, um, it's the sort of thing where Chesterton talk, that Chesterton talks about. I think that if, if you embrace it as a God-given thing – you you can learn to see how extraordinary ordinary things are. Mm. Yeah, good. Um, that that'll do. It. Yeah. <laughs> so last thing then. Um, these days we have gospel everything. Um, half of, half the yeah. books on my shelf at the bookshop here have gospel in the title. Um, yeah. You talk about a difference between. Uh, I'm not sure what you call. I call it a, go- a light gospel. Um, I'm not sure what you call yeah. it. And the other type of gospel you call something like a hundred proof gospel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or I, I like a rich gospel or, or something like that. Can you, can you explain the difference between the two and the impact that one versus the other has? Yeah. Um, and this is actually the reason this, um, this explanation, this answer I'm about to give you explains why we're up, uh, why I try to write across the waterfront yeah. on all these different all these different things. I'm a reformed Christian. I'm a Calvinist, and the and the God of the Calvinists is let us be frank an in your face God. Mm-hmm. Um, he relates to everything. Now, I I also belong to the stream in reformed theology and teaching that is uh, called Kuyperianism. Okay, so uh, Abraham Kuyper was a um, uh, a Dutch genius. theologian <laughs> genius. Uh, he, 
he was a he was a tornado in boots, right? Um, he was a journalist, a theologian. He became the prime minister of the Netherlands, newspaperman. You know, he was just out of control. Somebody should have sat him down and had a talk with him. <laughs> You're doing too much, guy. Calm down, <laughs> no, mate. No, 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 that, that's right. They, a serious need for intervention there, right? Um, but Kuyperianism basically says, Kuyper in a famous quote says, there's not one square inch uh, in the cosmos over which the Lord Jesus does not say mine. So uh, the Lord Jesus lays claim to everything. The Lordship of Christ is Lordship over all. So the Lordship of Christ is relevant to auto mechanics. It's relevant to geometry. Is relevant to the study of history. It's relevant to parenting, child rearing, marriage, etc. So uh, I have an a priori uh, faith that I can come to the Bible to find answers to everything. Mm. You know, if if I've got a if I've got a problem, if it's if it's significant enough to be a problem to me, I should be able to find uh, what to do in Scripture. And and to uh, cool. and to extend and deepen what you're saying, it's not just that you find answers there; it's that it speaks to and enriches and enlivens everything. You actually need to go there to understand everything. Right now, when you when you're looking at the modern gospel-centered world of evangelicalism, what they do is they say we want the gospel to be central, and I'm in no quarrel with that. I want the gospel to be central also. But I want to know how big is the circumference? Where's the circle? Okay, you've got a center. Does is this is the uh, is the gospel central to the tiny little project of getting you into heaven? Is that what the is that what the mission is, or is the gospel central to the salvation of the world mm. and everything it, and everything it contains? Yeah, I like that that way of viewing it. Um, that's kind of what happens if you close the circle down in, into, well, it's all about you getting saved. Um, mm-hmm. Then you start defining the gospel as, you know, Jesus died for your sins and yeah. that's the end of the story. You need to believe right. in him. Um, and I grew, up, I grew up in a church that did that. Once a week, they would gather all the Christians into the church service and preach to them how to become Christians. Right. And then they, then they give an invitation and, uh, and, and then after I became a minister, I, you know, I knew that Paul had said, I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And so I thought, does that mean what I grew up with where you're just preaching the message of the cross every, every week, or is it more textured, than that is it more robust than that and i'm i'm convinced that the death and resurrection of jesus christ transforms everything and it needs to be brought to bear on everything well um i think that's all we've we've got time for i've probably gone way over time so thank you so much for your patience um well pleasure to talk with you likewise and uh thanks again for joining us and uh For those listening in, you've been listening to the Reformers Bookcast. Uh, You can subscribe wherever you get your bookcasts, and we'll see you next time.